Good morning, church. Great to see you. Before we begin, I need to clear the air a little bit. I want to let you know that some fake news was shared from this very pulpit just a few weeks ago. Pastor JP here, when he began our series, claimed that I'm some kind of revelation expert. I don't know why he keeps making this claim. I took one class. But this just is not the case. Now, Revelation is great. It's very interesting. It's totally worth our study and our reflection. But I just don't want you to be deceived, church. All right? So just adjust your expectations a little bit, and we'll carry on. But I do look forward to looking at Revelation 4 and 5 with you this morning And you might say that this text this morning is where things really kind of begin to take off. So in chapter 1, we saw how John has this this encounter and this vision of the resurrected Christ. And this, this Christ has eyes like blazing fire and bronze feet and a face that shines like the sun. But then this Christ gives John these messages meant for these churches of Asia Minor. And of course, we looked at that over the last couple of weeks, the good, the bad, the ugly, just the things that he wants to address in the life of their community. But now we come to chapters four and five, and we move a little bit closer to an unveiling of the events which will bring about the close of history. But first, there's this important vision of worship. And as I read this, these chapters, as I prepared for this, I, as, I, as I read this text, I, I kept thinking to myself, man, it just seems like so many of the songs that we sing, so many of the songs of the church have, have borrowed from these phrases and images and visions that we have here in this very text. And so I did a little digging this past week, a very rigorous peer-reviewed study that I performed on this. What I did was I took that red hymnal that's right in front of you, and I flipped to the back. Did you know that there's an index which actually lists all the scripture allusions? And do you want to know what the top three texts of the entire Bible are that have inspired our songs? All right. (laughs) Yes, you do. Well, unsurprisingly, the first is those early chapters of the Gospels, those birth narratives. And of course, we get so many of our Christmas carols and songs from them. So that that one makes sense. Interestingly, the second most highly influential text on the songs of the church, at least the hymns, is Revelation 21 and 22, the closing vision of the new heavens and the new earth, which we'll explore in a few weeks. But then number three, according to my very rigorous peer-reviewed study, is this text this morning, Revelation 4 and 5. And of course, we've already sung some of these hymns, holy, holy, holy. You also have great is the Lord. You have all hail the power of Jesus' name. You have of the Father's love begotten. You have crowned him with many crowns. You even have the very last part of Handel's Messiah, which most of the time we're listening to at Christmas, but the closing part envisions this lamb who is worthy. 
You have the contemporary songs, How Great Is Our God, that Chris Tomlin song. You have Behold Our God. You have that early 2000s hill song hit, Worthy is the Lamb, that you might remember. But the question is, why have the phrases and images of this text worked into so many of our songs? It's because, I think as we'll see, we have a vision of the throne of God. The majesty of God and the the ongoing chorus of worship which happens there through all eternity. But I think it's also because we have God here in his fullness. God in all that he is, all that he has revealed himself to be as the object of worship. And so this morning I want to look at these songs Not the songs that we sing, but the songs that the angels and the living creatures are singing to God. And and what do we see that they find praiseworthy? Why do they sing? What do they highlight? The first thing is that their praise focuses on God as eternally existent. God as eternally existent. A God who, according to Revelation 1-4 and here in 4-8, a God who was and is and is to come. But secondly, God who is creator and sustainer of all things. God who is the source of your life and my life and all that is. But then finally, God as Savior. In this vision of a slain lamb, we see one who has conquered through death and who saves. Revelation goes on to refer to Christ as this lamb that we encounter here in this text 28 more times. And so it's this reminder of a God who laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sin, but who now reigns victoriously. And so as, we, as you may be aware, and as we'll soon see, the rest of Revelation unfolds with crazy judgments and clashes and conflicts and all of this Stuff that we'll unpack in weeks to come, but it's appropriate to start here with this vision of worship and the throne. And so I want to look at these songs, I want to look at this chorus of worship and all that it helps us focus on. But as we first turn to the text, let us pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you, this vision that you gave to your servant John. God, may this morning and in this series, may it be a window through which we also can view and appreciate your beauty and your purposes and your glory. So God, would you highlight for us in our hearts whatever it is we need to see from your text this morning, that we may worship you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, I just want to talk briefly about some of the images and the the figures and sort of the crazy things that we see and encounter in this text. And as we read Revelation, there's this temptation to try to pin everything down. You know, what is this exactly telling us? And we can't always do that. But these these are symbols for us. And so as such, they communicate something to us. So I want to talk a little bit about that. In Revelation 4, 1, we see that John is summoned by the same voice like a trumpet that he had heard in, in chapter 1, verse 10. It's the voice of Christ. 
And this voice calls to him, and then John is, is transported into this heavenly throne room. And he sees the throne of God, verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. We notice that the one on the throne is not physically described much more than these precious stones that are mentioned and, and the brilliant light that is cast on this throne as a result. But this is communicating something to us, and some scholars say that these stones represent God's authority and his mercy mingled together. These stones remind us of the, the breastplate that the priests of the Old Testament wore with, covered in a variety of precious stones. This emerald rainbow that it talks about is a, could be a reminder of God's promise to Noah never again to flood the earth as he did. That points to God's mercy. But of all this, these precious stones and this imagery, the, the, the point that I believe we're supposed to see is the, just the majesty of God. The majesty of God. And so that's the central throne. But then verse 4 tells us that surrounding that throne are 24 other thrones. And seated on them are 24 elders. 24 elders around this throne. And some scholars say that this is a picture here of the 12 tribes of Israel and of the 12 apostles, these entities, these tribes and these individuals through whom God chose to work and to carry his purposes forward in this world. And so it's representative of that, the entirety and the fullness of that. But John himself probably didn't know. He, he probably didn't know what to make of these 24 thrones. He didn't necessarily understand. And so what, what we see and what he saw was just this council of angels and angelic beings and creatures around this throne. So there's the, there's the central throne. There's the 24 other thrones with their elders. But then right immediately Around this throne of God, we see in verses 6 and 7, it says, In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. What's the point? What do we see here? You might remember our series on Ezekiel that wild book that we looked at some months ago. And the creatures here sound an awfully lot like what Ezekiel 1 tells us about this vision of the glory of God. The prophet Ezekiel sees the glory of God, sees these creatures, sees these wheels and wheels, and Ezekiel 10 describes these creatures as cherubim. And like these cherubim of Ezekiel, we have in these creatures a lion, a lion, we might think of as kind of the chief of wild animals. You have an ox, the chief of domesticated animals. You have an eagle, chief of the, of the skies, of the flying creatures. And you have a man who, of course, is the, the climax of God's creation, the one who holds dominion over this earth. And so these images, these, these creatures, I think they, they tell us and they represent for us just the fullness of creation. Just the fullness, the entirety 
of God's created things, worshiping Him. But most importantly, what is their job? What is their What is the job of these living creatures around the throne? It's to lead this ongoing worship, this ongoing hymn and doxology and chorus of worship to God. So all the imagery, the the, the point here is the majesty of God and the worthiness of the one who sits on the throne. But what does this heavenly council find praiseworthy? What do they focus on? What are they inspired by, and how can this inspire our own worship? Well, as I said, the first is that God is eternally existent. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. It tells us that the living creatures, they never stop singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Their song here is similar to what Isaiah sees when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6, those angels, too, saying, holy, 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 three times holy. Our creatures here say the same, but they, they also highlight that this is the eternally existent God, that he simply was, he always has been, he is, and he is to come. The fact is that the same God who rules over our lives and our world in this present age has always been. Genesis 1-1 famously says, in the beginning, God. God was there. God pre-existed all that is. God is the source of all that we see. God is the only uncreated thing. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he tried to make sense of how all things came to be and how all things relate. And he just came to recognize that there had to be a fundamental source of it all. There had to be one who preexisted all that is. And he called this one, this fundamental one, the unmoved mover, the prime mover, the fundamental being on which everything else depends. The pagan religion of John's own time had their own version of this. Zeus was, Zeus is, Zeus will be. Zeus was, Zeus is, Zeus will be. But notice what's different. Notice what's different about the the claim of the creatures and the angels. They praise God not just for the fact that he will eternally exist, that he will exist in the future, but that he will also come that he will come. This is not only a God of eternity, but a God who's involved. We look around our world these days at all the brokenness, the brutality, the violence, the conflicts, and and we feel the effects of, of sin, sinful choices, and sinful circumstances. But we trust that this eternal God, this eternally existent God, has not forsaken us. And he will come again. What we see at this throne is, is this is ultimate reality. If everything else is stripped away in your life, whatever you gain, whatever you lose, whatever comes your way, that there is a God who is on a throne and always will be. 
And this is a God who invites us into fellowship with him. So the elders, the creatures, they praise God who was and is and is to come. A God who just always has been. But then the song progresses. We see more of who God is. We see that this one who was and is and is to come is also the one who has created and who sustains all things. So they worship God on his throne as creator. Verse 10, we see that the elders are described as they, they, they lay down their crowns. They lay down their crowns as they worship. And they fall down before him. Their crowns symbolize whatever, whatever honor, whatever glory they had. They just give it back to God. They recognize that he is the only one worthy of glory and honor. And in your life, whatever, whatever accolades may come, whatever accomplishments, whatever successes, we just lay it down before a God who has gifted us and given us skill and ability and return honor to him. So, but the elders lay their crowns before the throne and they say in verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. The second focus of their worship is God as creator. This one who, out of his loving will, out of his careful creativity, spoke light into darkness. He separated sky from dry land and waters. He made celestial bodies and stars and the sun and planets that we might have night and day and seasons. This is the one who produced all that lives and plants and animals and every living thing. And then, of course, the climax of his creation you and me, to bear his image on this earth. I bet you feel this way, that there's just something about creation and its beauty and its majesty which just causes us to praise. If you've stood at the shore of a roaring ocean or if you've looked out from a mountaintop to see all that is below or if you've looked at a brilliant sunrise or sunset or just watched the flowers pop through the ground in the spring, you know this feeling. Unfortunately, we're often just stuck behind screens. Unfortunately, we're just caught up in the hustle and bustle of daily life that we may not recognize. But all creation praises God. Last spring, our church staff did a retreat last March, and it was a special time for me for a number of reasons, but one of the optional activities that we could do was called a Lectio of Creation. Larry J. led us in a retreat that day, and I did that Lectio of Creation, basically this contemplative exercise where we look for God and we notice God in nature. So it was an overcast day. It was a little windy. It was a little damp, but as I walked and explored around and as I, as I just kind of engaged this exercise and opened up all my senses, what did I see? I see the birds flying around and chirping. I saw the squirrels running around from tree to tree, and I just had this profound appreciation in that moment that God provides for all creation. As a staff, this past week, we looked at Psalm 104 in our prayer time. Psalm 104 says, 
How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. You know, in our, in our world and in our lives, we often feel pretty self-sufficient. We, we often just sense that we sort of control all things, that we are the king of our own lives, that we make it happen. But when we look at the outside world, when we think about God as creator, we know that we are sustained only by the word of his power and by his love toward us. God gives us breath in our lungs. God gives us thoughts in our minds. He provides for all that we need. So God is creator. This one who was and is and is to come, this one who is creator, gathers the worship of all the elders and living creatures. But this God provides not just for our material needs. This God has also provided for our greatest need which is to be reconciled to him. So that leads us to the last focus of our worship, which is worshiping God as Savior. God as Savior. As we move into chapter 5, this important development happens. The, the focus turns to this scroll that's in the right hand of the one on the throne. And in our reading this morning that John did, we, we skip the opening verses of chapter 5. But in those verses, what happens is one of these angels calls out in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? Verse 2. And initially, no one is found worthy. No one in all the earth or in the heavens or under the earth is found worthy to open this scroll. And John weeps and weeps and weeps. John here, he's, he's led to this, this throne room vision. He's transported to this place. He sees the worship of this one on the throne, and then his focus turns to this scroll. He's got to be thinking, there's got to be something of, of the plan of God, of the will of God in that scroll, so it has to be opened. But no one is found worthy to break the seal until someone is found worthy. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, these are messianic titles of the Old Testament applied to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the elder says, the lion has triumphed. He says, see, there's a lion who has triumphed. But what does John see? When John looks, he sees a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain, bearing the marks of having been killed. Now it's a, it's a lamb with eyes and horns, and there is a picture of victory here. But a lamb initially doesn't sound triumphant, doesn't sound conquering, doesn't sound mighty. But in the lamb, we have a picture of Jesus Christ, who still bears the scars of his sacrifice. 
But a lamb, a lamb, it sounds, it sounds familiar. What does what, what the Bible help us understand what's going on here? What is this image? Isaiah 53, one of the most amazing prophecies about Christ, describes one who was oppressed and afflicted and led like a lamb to the slaughter. When it was time for Jesus to begin his ministry, John the Baptist announced, Look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 1 Corinthians 7, make this connection that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Passover is this celebration for God's people when God commanded them to sacrifice a lamb and to use its blood to paint over their doorposts that they might be spared, that they might be saved when God would send that final plague on Egypt right before he would deliver them. So for us, Christ is our lamb. His blood saves us and covers us and protects us from the judgment of God. And so they worship God as Savior. This lamb, they sing in verses 9 and 10, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We have to notice what's going on there. We have to notice what the Lamb has accomplished for us. The blood of the Lamb has purchased us for God, has purchased us back from darkness, has purchased us back from the consequences of our sin. So this lamb is God as Savior. And his sacrifice on the throne of heaven is always remembered and celebrated by the creatures and the elders. And we see that the lamb has triumphed precisely through his obedience, precisely through his sacrifice, precisely by being given over to wicked men and to dying on a cross. It is through that that he triumphs. And so this lamb is the only one worthy. The only one worthy to open the scroll and its seals. What is the scroll? The scroll is the plans of God for the rest of of history, the will of God to bring all things to an end. And it's this lamb alone who is then worthy through his triumph, through his conquest. He's the only one worthy to activate these closing events of history, these judgments of God. And we will begin to see that next week as we look at chapter six and the seals. So friends, the worship of heaven that's going on right now and for all eternity celebrates a God who was and is and is to come, a God who creates and sustains, and a God who is Savior. What do we do with this? What difference does this make for us? What does this scene cause us to do or to think? And the first takeaway, friends, is, is just on our level of understanding. The first takeaway is is, is this your God? 
Is this your God? Is the God you worship and serve the one who just always has been and is and is to come? Is your God the one who exists outside of all time but loves you in time right now? That one's pretty entry level, you might say. Most theists would say, yes, God is eternal. What else do we see? Is your God the one who created and sustains all things by the word of his power? Is this God the one that you depend on for your very life? Well, that one asks a little bit more of us, that we belong to this God that created us, that we depend on him that he is involved in this world. But more importantly, is your God also the slain lamb? The one who loved this broken world so much that he laid down his life for your sin and for mine, that you might be reconciled to God. The one whose blood alone buys us back from death and destruction. And so the takeaway for you is, is this your God? If our God is anything less or anything other than this, we are not worshiping the God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. So we may have to recalibrate. We may have to appreciate in a new way. But secondly and finally, we can't help but be struck by this lamb, this lamb who is slain but worthy. And it reminds us of what Christ's triumph has looked like. For Jesus, it wasn't an overthrow of government. It wasn't a political kingdom. It was a different kind of kingdom inaugurated in his death and in his resurrection. Jesus, in his work, threw off a much greater oppressor than others could imagine. The oppressor of the power of sin and death over us. So this was the Lamb's path to victory. And church, only the Lamb's victory can save us. But in the example of the Lamb, we see what a victorious life could look like for us. A victorious life in your relationships, in your calling, in your work, in your love for God. It's a life that comes through humility and sacrificial love and obedience to God. And as this text and all of Revelation will show us, faithfulness to the calling that he has given you. Let us pray. God, we look to you in all of your fullness. Lord, we look to you as the one who was and is and is to come. We look to you as the creator. We look to you as our savior whose blood purchased us back. God, help us to appreciate you fully, Lord, and help us to join into this course of worship that goes on for all eternity, for all time, around your throne. Lord, we worship you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.